Our speaker to begin is Stephen Wellam. He's professor of Christian theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. His topic this morning is the underpinning and understanding of biblical theology. So that will get us started. Well, it's great to be with you uh, this morning. Let's just bow in prayer. Um, ask the Lord to be with us all day as we work through some of these issues. And then, since I'm the first one to go with our tag team of Peter and I, um, that uh, I'll just sort of lay out where we're going. Right? So you've got your, your uh, titles on your uh, bulletin, but then just fill those out a bit more. Right? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being here. We thank you for gathering with like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ, the fellowship that we can have, the encouragement and challenge to one another. And as we think through uh, your word, as we step back and try to understand something of the whole counsel of God so that we may rightly know you, rightly um, glory in the Lord Jesus Christ and see in him uh, all of your promises, yes and amen, that we would uh, think through these issues carefully. They are sometimes difficult. Uh, Christians disagree uh, on these points. And we want to see the unity of uh, the faith. We want to see ourselves and the entire church uh, know your word better and bring our lives and thoughts in conformity to it. Uh, none of us uh, uh, have all the answers. Uh, we stand as debtors to your grace and ultimately under your word. And so we pray that as we think through these areas that you enable us uh, to be faithful to you, faithful to your self-disclosure, uh, faithful to all that you have said about yourself, and faithful to how all of your plans and purposes come to fulfillment and fruition in the glory of the Lord Jesus. May he receive all praise and honor this day in our lives and in the church uh, and in the world. And we ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, let me just describe what we're going to be doing over these next uh, four sessions and then in our, our interaction together, right? Uh, we're, I'm beginning because uh, the book that uh, Peter and I were able to put together a couple years ago, uh, Kingdom Through Covenant, right? Uh, I began in part one, broken up into three parts. Peter had the main bulk there in uh, part two as he worked through uh, the Old Testament covenants, bringing it to the New Covenant. And then I tried to show in part three, sort of the sandwich effect uh, of the work, to see um, how all of this impacts um, the doing of theology and, and church disputes and debates among Christians, right? Uh, we're not just interested in just throwing out views for the sake of throwing out views. You want to know what Scripture says. And we want to be able to rightly handle the word of truth. And we want to be able to, in our disagreements, come to agreement, if that's at all possible, this side of glory, right? So the, uh, the attempt there was to think through these issues very, very carefully. So part one, which is really what I'll be looking at here in brief form, sort of lays out, you know, why covenants are important, uh, discussion of covenants in theologies, Right? Theologies that we as Christians hold to that then lead to debates and divisions among us. Uh, debates and divisions of whole denominations. 
church practices, our understanding of how the Bible's put together. And these aren't minor debates. I mean, they're, they're very, very important debates that we need to wrestle through. And we've been doing that, obviously, for years and years and years. And trying to, uh, to provide maybe more clarity or pro- try to provide a suggestion of, of a different way and this type of thing. So this morning, or my first address here, is that I want to, and the title is sort of cryptic, right? Underpinning and understanding of biblical theology. Well, what does that mean? Um, what I'm doing here is uh, saying, how do the covenants, right? How do the biblical covenants uh, relate to what we're going to call biblical theology? And we'll define what we mean by that. Some of this is um, academic language, but don't be turned off by academic language. Academic language is simply a way of trying to wrestle with our proper interpretation application of the Bible. Right? So that's a concern for all believers. Uh, our desire is to know the whole counsel of God. So we want to think through covenants as they relate to this topic of biblical theology and how covenants, and this is part of our proposal, and this isn't going to be new to, I think, anyone here, is that how covenants are so foundational, such as the underpinning to putting your whole Bible together. And that's really what biblical theology uh, is all about. So that's where we're going. And then Peter will come up in two addresses before lunch, and then he'll take uh, Steve West's uh, comments yesterday seriously after lunch, <laughs> uh, after our, our dinner. Uh, so to uh, work through some of those covenants, obviously he can't do everything. And then uh, in the afternoon, come back, and I want to spell out uh, where this impacts the differences among us as believers and uh, where uh, this has theological uh, implications right, uh, for our daily lives and for how we view the church and how we view the gospel and so on. So let me uh, now begin with thinking through now biblical covenants really as the foundation to this term biblical theology or the underpinning the understanding of this. Now, I want to begin just with what we were seeking to contribute in the book, right? And again, this is nothing new, but it just shows you what we're trying to argue, where this book is going, right? So we're told that, uh, you know, 800 pages or so is hard to get through. Uh, we understand that. So we're trying to sort of give you, this, this gives you sort of the map of, of what we were trying to do and accomplish with all those details, right? First, just at the broadest sense, and of course this is what we should all be seeking to accomplish in this book, we're trying to show how the Bible fits together. So we're trying to show how the whole counsel of God fits, how we understand better God's plan from eternity past as it works out in the stage of human history, culminating in Jesus Christ. So that's the first and foremost goal. If we can help people know God better through the Lord Jesus Christ and understand His great and glorious plan, then we've accomplished our our goal and aim. Second, what we tried to do in doing that, obviously when we're starting to put the Bible together, there's where people now start to divide. Everyone says, well, (laughs) the whole Bible leads us to Jesus, all right? But how does it lead us to Jesus? And uh, in exactly what way? So we tried, and I use this term that... um, I was trying to be clever. I've been shot at uh, from our Presbyterian brothers who totally don't have a sense of humor <laughs> and uh, misunderstand everything we're saying. Um, I said, we are going to provide uh, via media, fancy term for middle way, 
well, via media has been used in the past to refer to a number of things, and they charged us with uh, going towards Anglicanism and uh, Catholic Catholicism, I mean, because via media has been used in a variety of ways. Well, we, all we were saying is, look, <laughs> uh, what we're trying to do here is we're not happy, and I think that's why we're, you know, John Riesinger, his ministry over the years and so on, the whole role of New Covenant theology is to say there are, there are dominant interpretive ways that people put their Bibles together. Those dominant ways are known as, broadly, dispensational theology. And there's a lot of varieties of dispensational theology. Right? And you have to always be careful. Those who come from a dispensational end do not like being charged with just one thing. Uh, covenant theology, Presbyterians love to just write everyone off as a dispensationalist, but uh, you know, it's not so easy as that. So that there's dispensational theology, and that's a whole Bible theology. Now, you may disagree with it, I disagree with it, yet it's an attempt to put your Bible together, to understand Genesis Revelation. We weren't completely happy, and you're not completely happy with how that all is put together. And on the other hand, there's covenant theology, and covenant theology has a lot of varieties. If you don't believe that, just talk to Westminster, Philadelphia, and Westminster, California, and uh, Doug Wilson. I mean, there's all kinds of divisions. Uh, our Presbyterian brothers love to slice and dice one another, right? Now, that happens in Baptist circles, too. But, uh, you know, there's all kinds of divisions among them. Yet, right, there is an overall way that they put the Bible together. And we're not happy with them. So we're saying, well, what do we do? Well, we've got to find a middle road, right? Now, a middle road, sometimes middle roads are disastrous. Sometimes they are compromised, right? So we don't hold the middle roads and everything. Uh, but in this area, we say, look, dispensationalism isn't all wrong. Covenant theology isn't all wrong. I mean, people aren't that dense, right? I mean, they read the same Bible. They've been doing this for many, many years. We stand on their shoulders. Uh, we now are able to look at the fruit of their labors and say, yes, 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 but, 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 yes, 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 but, and then try to provide a kind of middle way, right? And that's what we're doing. And New Covenant Theology really does that as well, right? I mean, that's what we're doing. We're trying to say we're not happy with these dominant views. There may be truth in them. There may be an insight that they have that's a good corrective to the other one. Yet we want to provide something of an alternative. And that's what uh, we sought to do. Now, thirdly, right? So we're trying to now come to the unity of the faith. We're trying to say we can resolve, at least attempt to resolve these differences. Thirdly, underneath all of this is what it means to be biblical, right? So how do we actually know we are being faithful to the biblical text? That is a crucial question that all Christians need to ask, right? How do we know we are being faithful to the biblical text and thus drawing correct conclusions, right? So when... We believe in believer's baptism. Covenant individuals believe in infant baptism. You can't both be right on this, right? Uh, various eschatological issues. You can't both be right. So how do we know who's right, right? We are not satisfied with saying in our postmodern age, well, it's all your perspective, right? We do not like, and I have to define my terms here. I've asked people to... Uh, uh, to say, do you know what this means? But uh, here, I'll throw this out. Maybe you know what it means. The Bible is not a wax nose. You know what a wax nose is? Wax nose, right? You have a wax figure. And in a wax figure, right, you just heat that face. You don't like the way the nose looks. You just 
heat it up a little bit, you bend it the way you want it, and you just make it in the eye of the beholder. Right? The Bible's not like that. We are convinced the Bible is God's Word. God intends for us to understand it. It can't be understood in 10 million different ways. Right? Uh, and we want to then correctly handle, divide the Word of truth. So underneath all of this is in looking at the covenants and in arbitrating between various views and understanding God's plan, we want to better understand what it means to be biblical and what it means to be faithful. And so in some sense, our book is trying to present a positive, not just a negative critical, it's trying to present a positive view of this is how we think the Bible works, or this is how we think God's plan unfolds. This is how we think the whole picture fits together. Now, in saying that, I must say this very, very, very quickly, right? We are not saying, right, that we're original. I always say, I'll tell that to students, right? There's too many people running around who think that uh, in what they're doing is this is some brand new view, you got to listen to us. Everything we've said has been said before. Now, if we've done anything at all, it's maybe you put it in one spot, right? Or maybe you put a few thoughts together that maybe haven't been put in one area. But there's nothing new under the sun. So don't ever think that. And we have to be very careful, even in New Covenant conferences type of thing, that somehow we've got an insight and nobody else has ever seen this before. No, we stand on the shoulders who've gone before us. Most of the disagreements we have between our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially if they really do, our evangelicals believe the Word of God and so on. I mean, we're talking, you know, two, you know, maybe two to five percent differences or something like that. Now, those differences are important. Yet we do agree on so many different things, right? So we do want to, I'm willing to work with a variety of people. Now, in certain areas, eventually you just can't because of the practical nature of uh, local church ministry, uh, you know, how the ordinances work and so on. You just can't compromise in those areas. Yet it's important to see that we have much more in common, right? So when I talk to my Westminster uh, brothers, I mean, there's so much we have in common with them, yet we're not convinced they are seeing it at certain points correctly. So that's why most of our book zeroes in on not our agreements, but often our disagreements. And of course, it looks like then you're just constantly debating with people. But it's here. We're trying to zero in and provide uh, sort of a roadmap to say, this is why we disagree. Instead of just talking past one another, let's get to the heart of the issue. Let's set all of our, our views on the table Let's try as best we can. We're all biased and everything else. But we, we would try as best we can to lay out our assumptions, to say this is how we put things together, and if you've got a better way of doing it, then give us your arguments, right? And then lay it out for us, and that's what we're seeking, uh, seeking to do. So in that area, we're trying to understand all of God's plan. We're trying to provide sort of an alternative between the dominant views. Ultimately, behind all of it is how to be biblical, to know how we rightly handle the word of truth. And then this is where now we move to the covenants. Right? Now again, this is not something new with us, but we are saying, and sometimes this is misunderstood in some of the criticisms that we've had of the book. Right? We're not just saying covenants are important. Well, that's true. But we're making a specific argument, right? The language of kingdom through covenant. And I'm going to emphasize through is used two different ways in the book. Chapter 16, I describe both those ways. So in Peter's chapters, he uses it in both ways and then predominantly even one way. And I'm using another way. But the throughness here, let me describe what throughness is. Kingdom 
God's rule and reign comes through covenant relationships. That's one way of through. The dominant way that I'm going to pick up now is through in the sense of over time through. This is the difference between the fancy terms for this is synchronic and diachronic. Right? Synchronic, chronic, right? You think of chronos time. Synchronic is sort of a slice in time. You look at things at just this moment, right? Or exegesis sometimes is said as synchronic. You look at a text in its immediate context. Diachronic is through time. So we're looking at the unfolding of God's plan, right? God has not made himself known to us all at once. It's just an obvious observation. But he's done so over time. We call this redemptive history. We speak of creation to new creation. Well, there's a lot of time gap between that. And God has revealed himself, and then we introduce this notion of progression. Progression has to be very, very carefully defined. We've got progressive theologians, or or, or politicians, I should say. Uh, That's not what we're meaning by progressives. What we're talking about progression here is not progression versus regression. We're talking about an unfolding plan, right? A developing plan that God speaks, uh, creates the world, reveals himself to Adam, and more of that plan from eternity now is disclosed. This is what Paul refers to in terms of the mystery Ephesians 5 last night had the mystery of human marriage tied to Christ in the church. Well, mystery there is a revelation term, isn't it? It is that which is from eternity past, now unfolded for us before time, right? So now when we speak of what we're trying to contribute, our kingdom through covenant, we are speaking of God's rule and reign through the covenants, through the progression of the covenants. So it's not just covenant here, covenant there, and you sort of randomly put them together or lump them all into one category. We are saying God has deliberately, in his plan, worked from creation to new creation. There are covenants that go from one to the other. These covenants aren't randomly thrown together. They are part of one plan. And I have to say that part of one plan because Uh, My Reformed Baptist brethren and uh, covenant people don't like us when we say, let's not use the term the covenant of grace, right? Now, the reason why we get rid of the covenant of grace is because, first of all, it's, it's, uh, it's not a biblical term. That doesn't even necessarily get rid of it. I mean, it's a theological term. That's fine. So is the word trinity. Yet what happens in this notion of the covenant of grace is all the biblical covenants sort of get lumped under it and they get flattened. So we're saying that's not the best way to do it. Uh, We need to see how each covenant is unfolded, how it leads to the next covenant. And the next covenant isn't another plan. It's part of the unfolding plan. And that through the progression of these covenants, ultimately from creation to Christ, the plan of God is now displayed before us. We see more and more of God's who He is. We see more and more of who we are. We see more of uh, what our need is. We see more and more of how He's going to provide that need. And ultimately, all of those plans, and this is why uh, we call you can call this new covenant theology. We call it progressive covenantalism. We did that to create a fancy term to sound good in the academic world. But um, uh, you know, you have to be you have to be creative, and you go to these theological societies, and you have to you know look a certain way and act a certain way. But um, uh, you know, we progression, progressive covenantalism is just 
the progress of the covenants. But ultimately, it's new covenant theology in that all of the covenants build, unfold, culminate in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we'll often say to people, and we always say it in a kind of tongue-in-cheek, right? Because they wouldn't, you know, none of our brothers and sisters and other schemes and views would like this. But we always say to them, you know, the problem that you have uh, in your system versus what we're proposing here is you don't have enough Jesus. And they say, what do you mean you don't have enough Jesus, right? Well, you say, we want to be more Christ-centered than you are. And, of course, that really gets them uh, upset when we do that. But uh, there is a lot of truth in that as you actually begin to unfold things step by step by step because our conviction is, and I think yours is as well, is that all of God's plan and promises come to fruition in Jesus. Right? And then we then have to see how that works out for us as his people. Right? So that's what we're doing, the progression of the biblical covenant. So what we are saying here is that it's through these covenants that we now see the unfolding plan of God. That's how God's plan and revelation, that's how his word is structured. And I'll come back to that uh, that word structuring uh, a little bit later because that's what is going to then tie into the notion of biblical uh, theology, right? And our conviction is, is unless, unless you think through how you move from creation to Christ through the covenants, you inevitably are going to fail. Now, it doesn't mean in every area, but you're going to fail to grasp the plot line of the Bible. Right? That's the first thing. You're not going to see correctly how it unfolds. And more significantly, you're going to make mistakes. Right? You're going to make wrong conclusions. Now, when I say make mistakes, it could be you make a mistake. That is, that is life and death here. Now, we're talking within the evangelical world of mistakes that are, are differences that we then have among us, right? And so we're calling that mistake. So we're not speaking in the grand sense of it. But, I mean, it's possible if you get the Bible wrong, you make some grand mistakes and there's life and death issues that, that hang on it. But uh, uh, we are then saying that you have to properly put the Bible together. And then this is another phrase that we want to say, the way God intended, not the way you like it, right? Now, of course... In saying it that way, we're not saying, you know, we we can get it all right and everyone else can, gets it wrong and they're all biased and we're not, right? But we are trying to say, look, the task of believers is to say, what? how has God put his own word together? How has he done that? It's our task to then discover how the pieces fit, right? And then be able to think in light of it. So that's the fourth area. So this is what we're seeking to contribute, right? The whole plan of God, settle differences between... Christians, right, to try to make a positive presentation. Hey, we think you're not correct at these points. Let's talk about it. Right? Uh, thirdly, how to be biblical, how to move from biblical text to then these theological conclusions. And then our ultimate conclusion here is, in some sense, our proposal here is the progression of the biblical covenants is the means by which God's plan unfolds and culminates in Christ. Now, you think of how... I mean, again, this is not not new to you, but you think of how um, uh, the early church had to wrestle through all these issues, right? I mean, we start thinking of the covenantal relations, promise fulfillment, Old Testament to New Testament, Old Covenant to New Covenant, and all the other biblical covenants. You think in the New Testament of how all the Jew-Gentile conflicts that are going on. Well, what's going on here? Well, it's it's they're they're wrestling with the progression of the covenant. Right? Uh, all of the issues of the Judaizers. The heart of the Judaizer problem is probably a lot of things, but it's ultimately they don't understand the progression of the covenants. Right? Uh, 
the Jerusalem Council is wrestling with these things. Uh, Romans 14 and 15, the strong and weak issues. All of these things, strong and weak is not about, you know, dancing, smoking, and drinking, right? Uh, that may be a tertiary application. Strong and weak, for first and foremost, is covenantal, right? Food laws, well, what do we do with these food laws? What do we do with circumcision? Well, those are pretty important things. When Paul can say, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, what I want you to do is obey the law of God and circumcision is nothing, you think, I thought circumcision was the law of God. Right? I mean, how do you make sense of that? Well, the whole Bible is now seeing how it comes to culmination in Christ. Now, today, our debates then on moral law and Ten Commandments and Sabbath and nature of the church and baptism and eschatology and even the, the work of Christ, I mean, all center on these issues. So we, that's why we're saying that you'll eventually make theological mistakes if you then don't think carefully through in your conclusions, in all of your theology, how God's plan unfolds, how the whole Bible fits together, and how it ultimately culminates in Christ, right? So that's the contribution we're trying and seeking to make. Now, let's pick up here in sort of the second main area that we'll develop now for the rest of our time, is that the progression of the biblical covenants is foundational, right? Or is the underpinning, as it has in your notes here. Or is it's, it's, it's crucial to understanding biblical theology, now, of course, I'm going to break this down in terms of two steps. Right? So the progression of the covenants is foundational understanding of biblical theology. We first have to say, ask, what is biblical theology? Right? What, how is this term being used, um, and why is it important? And then we'll turn back to the notion of the progression of the covenants. Right? So first, let's think through here just this term, uh, biblical uh, theology, right? Biblical theology means many things to many people. In some sense, it's becoming a very abused word, right? a very abused concept. Right? Now, at the most popular level, right? if we were to take polls in most of our churches, right? church I serve, if I were to ask most of my people without them you know, then having instruction on this, you would say, what do you think biblical theology is? Their default answer would be, uh, you believe the Bible. Right? Or you show it from the Bible. And of course, that is obviously crucial. But biblical theology, I'm using it in, in a more technical sense. Right? So I'm using it in a more, what we would say, a disciplinary sense. And of course, this then ties into questions of, I mean, just the way we use systematic theology is a, is a disciplinary sense. And then there's, there's a particular understanding of that, particular assumptions, uh, particular methodology that lies under that. And the same then is true of biblical theology. So biblical theology is a, is a disciplined term in the sense of it's, it's a way of, of thinking in terms of certain assumptions, methods, process, and so on. Now, at the heart, I'm going to use biblical theology in the sense of this is what I'm going to call a hermeneutical discipline. Now, what do I mean by hermeneutical discipline? Well, hermeneutical, right? It allows us, hermeneutics is about interpretation, how we then interpret and apply the Bible correctly. So biblical theology is a hermeneutical discipline which allows us to understand the whole counsel of God. Right? It's a discipline which seeks to understand how all the parts fit together how God has disclosed himself, how the pieces come together in terms of the whole. So parts to whole, whole to parts. And biblical theology is that discipline that has assumptions 
It has a certain view of scripture, and this is where people will differ on their views of biblical theology that we bring to the table. It has a certain understanding of hermeneutics as well. And so in chapter 3, we try to lay out our assumptions as to how we rightly think we should interpret the Bible. And nothing we say in there is anything new. If it were new, it would be disastrous. But it has to be said because in today's evangelical world, people are not in the same camp here, right? Uh, evangelicalism is in such disarray. Uh, there's so many different views. I mean, what we're holding here is a very, very, very traditional, historic position of the church, which uh, almost in some people's minds seems new. The new, the old stuff seems new today, uh, which is very interesting, right? So I always tell students, hold on to the old stuff. Uh, you'll be then, you'll be avant-garde if you do so. Um, now, uh, in terms of uh, biblical theology, there's, there's a whole spectrum of viewpoints here. Uh, there's a book, and for some of you, you might be interested in this, a book by Edward Clink, and he's not the old Hogan's Heroes Clink, um, Edward Clink and Darian Lockett, Understanding Biblical Theology. It came out in 2012 by Zondervan, Understanding Biblical Theology. They give a whole spectrum of five different biblical theologies. So it shows you the diversity. Well, in our view, not much of these are biblical theology at all. Uh, they never talk about assumptions. They never talk about the doctrine of Scripture. I mean, that is crucial in understanding what you're doing when you put the Bible together. So that uh, it's, it's basically showing there's credible diversity out there. Even on our own faculty at Southern, uh, Peter and I would not, I mean, we obviously be 99% agreement with most of our faculty, but uh, we don't always approach uh, these things exactly the same way, right? So that uh, we then want to, that's why we spend time saying, this is where we're coming from. This is what we think has to be held to, to be faithful to the Bible. Right? And so then we throw that out as well. So we're going to define biblical theology as a discipline, a hermeneutical discipline, which seeks to understand how the whole Bible fits together. And then I'm going to throw out another phrase here, which is important. We're trying to understand the Bible on its own terms. Right? And that's at the heart of a biblical theology. Biblical theology, how the whole Bible fits together on its own terms. Right? And of course, that just begs the question, what's its terms? Right? How is the Bible actually structured? Now, in uh, chapter 1 or 2, I can't remember, um, we do distinguish ourselves, I distinguish in that section, ourselves from liberal and liberal is a broad catch-all term that we'd have to define, but liberal biblical theology. There are some things like that, but it, it's nothing to do with what we're doing. Right? We are proposing, right, and this is historic Christianity, we're proposing an evangelical biblical theology, which means we believe the Bible, uh, we take it on its own say-so, and so that's why we, I spend time talking about the self-attestation of Scripture. And you know, Don't take that for granted in our day. Uh, what does Scripture claim for itself? What does it claim for itself? It's God's Word through human authors. And so there's a doctrine of inspiration, inerrancy, and, and, and so on. And then we say that uh, an evangelical biblical theology is then seeking to understand what God has made known of Himself across the entire canon. It's God's Word. We're seeking to understand God's intent. And we're doing that as it has come to us, step by step by step, putting the pieces together, culminating in Christ. We are discovering, and I've already said this before, but this is very, very important, and there's a whole, whole debate on this in, in the academic world. We are trying to discover, and this is what we should all be trying to discover, right? God's intent. 
Now, the issues of intention, particularly God's intention, is crucial. The scripture is God's word. He is giving us his plan. We want to know what his plan is. So we use this beautiful phrase, often in Reformed theology, thinking God's thoughts after him. Now, that's what we're doing in biblical theology, right? We're trying to think his thoughts after him. How has he made himself known step by step by step? And how do we put all those pieces together? So what I lay out in uh, chapter 3 in terms of hermeneutics, we want to argue strongly for the Reformation sense, and it goes back to the early church, of what is called a literal sense, sensus literalis in terms of the Bible, right? What that simply means is not literalistic. Literal sense means according to the intention of the author. You have human authors, but we come to know God. God through those human authors. We never come to know what God says apart from the human authors. The human authors are multiple, right? And they come across time to us. And so we put author together with author together with author together. And then we understand what God says, right? So we understand God's intent through the human author, a literal sense. Now that's set over against allegorical and this kind of thing. We are not interested in your imagination coming to the Bible and my imagination. We want to understand what the text actually is saying through the authors, right? So we do exegesis, multiple authors, which gives us a canon, which ultimately, yes, God's intent is found in each of those authors, but we know where it's all going in terms of the whole Bible, right? So it's canonical. And we often describe our method as grammatical, right? This is nothing new. Historical, right? So we understand its grammar, its paragraphs, its literature, its literary sense, its literary forms, grammatical, historical in its time period, canonical, right? So we're trying to put all of this together. Now, we have to lay that out because allegory is on the rise, right? Uh, postmodern readings of relativism are on the rise. Uh, reader responses on the rise. All of this uh, we have no time for. So that we say, I mean, you know, we have to interact with them, we have to critique them, we have to evaluate them, but we ultimately argue there's a bad theology underneath. There's a wrong worldview, there's wrong assumptions, there's a denial of scripture, and of course those things have to be debated in the, uh, the apologetic uh, realm, right? So that God's word has come to us, biblical theology, then seeking to put the whole together. So, two Reformation slogans then govern our doing of biblical theology, sola scriptura, right? Scripture alone. Scripture alone is our final authority. Scripture interprets Scripture, right? So we have all of Scripture interpreting one another, right? So that all the parts, in terms of the whole, the whole in terms of the parts. Now, so we distinguish ourselves clearly from liberal biblical theology, which does not have that view of Scripture, does not have a certain view of God. I mean, it's, 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 it's an entirely, as J. Gretchen Mason said, way back in the 20s, early 30s, Christianity and liberalism. Liberalism in all of its varieties is not Christianity. So we have to fight like mad, and, and that's a whole different area uh, outside of the evangelical world, and then make sure evangelicals aren't uh, compromising at this point. Right? Now, within the evangelical world, we do not think that biblical theology is just, as I said, a merely appealing to the Bible. Right? What I say to my students all the time is there's all kinds of evangelical books that have all kinds of Bible quotations, right? and they're totally unbiblical. I've read many, many books, uh, and I'll use, since uh, you know, I originally come from Canada, I'll, I'll pick on Clark Pinnock. Uh, Clark Pinnock was a Canadian theologian. 
And uh, Clark Pinnock has all kinds of references to the Bible all through his works. Most of his stuff is nothing to do with the Bible. It is totally disconnected. It is totally arbitrarily picked. It's arbitrarily put together so that we do not think biblical theology, even among the evangelicals, is simply appealing to the Bible. It's, it's how you appeal to the Bible. It's how the pieces fit together. Right? We're not even saying that biblical theology, and this is where we differ with uh, others, even some of our colleagues, biblical theology isn't just simply putting themes together. Right? Well, the Bible, biblical theology will put themes across the canon, but it's how you put those themes together. Right? Uh, you can't just arbitrarily pick... Um, there was one book that came out years ago called Symphonic Theology, where you have an organic theme, and you run an organic theme across the Bible. Well, go ahead, but I'm not sure that's the way God intended for that theme to work. Right? So you've got to now take the themes tied to the text themselves. You have to see how these various points work themselves out. We often use the illustration of, uh, this is a typological illustration, but it's a good illustration to show what I'm meaning by this, is you take the Exodus event of the Old Testament. Exodus event, right? Crucial point in redemptive history, um, God's deliverance of his people, and we wrestle with what's going on there, right? Well, there's a whole group of theologians who will take the Exodus event as a paradigm, a pattern of now God's saving the poor. It's called liberation theology. So just as God pulled out this enslaved nation out of this political superpower, so God does that today. And what do they appeal to? The Exodus. And you've got a good biblical warrant for this. Our contention would be that's not how the Exodus works at all in the Bible. Yes, God delivered them from the powers of Egypt. Yet, as you work this pattern out, it becomes an entire pattern through the covenants. And ultimately, that Exodus finds its fulfillment not in your deliverance from the superpower, but ultimately the cross. The redemptive work of God in Jesus Christ, redeeming us from sin, and to then conclude otherwise is wrong. It's false. It's a misuse of the Bible. Right? And so you cannot just make the Bible say anything you want. So it's not just themes. We are trying to put the Bible together, and this comes back to what I've said before, on its own terms the way God intended it, right? So that, of course, raises the question, all right, well, what are the Bible's own terms? Right? And, of course, there has to be a lot of discussion of that, right? We have to work within the theology of the Bible, uh, its own categories, uh, its own presentation. But our, pre- our, but our argument here is part of and crucial in the underpinning of this own terms are the biblical covenants, So that part of the way God has structured his revelation, how he has made himself known, is through those progressive covenants, right? Through those covenants as they unfold to us. That is the backbone to the entire storyline of the Bible or the meta-narrative of the Bible. And those covenants then become, we'd say, hermeneutically significant, right? They're not just window dressing. They are part of God's unfolding plan. So we have to always be asking what's being revealed in this Abrahamic covenant? How does it fit with what's previous? What's being taught here? How does it go into the old covenant? How is the old covenant functioning in redemptive history to lead us ultimately to Davidic, to the new covenant? And then how do all these pieces fit together as us, as the people of God living in this era? Now, there's a really important book, and uh, we don't interact with him uh, in the book because it came out later. Um, and I encourage you to read this. Uh, because we're um, very pleased with what this fellow is doing. It's Graham Goldsworthy. Graham Goldsworthy, Australian. 
associated with Moore Theological in Sydney. Very, very fine institution. Anglican, it's very strange. It's an Anglican institution that's very, very evangelical, not typical uh, Anglican. And uh, they've turned out a lot of wonderful works, biblical scholars. P.T. O'Brien probably may read his commentaries in Ephesians and Hebrews and Colossians, uh, Philippians, and so on. And uh, many, many, many other people. Graham Goldsworthy has been on the forefront of biblical theology uh, we, uh, up until uh, we put our thing out. Uh, you know, I would use his book, According to Plan, very excellent book uh, for Sunday school and to get people thinking through the whole Bible um, as uh, he laid that book out there and so on. And in a later book called Christ-Centered Biblical Theology, he's wrestling with the same question that we think is really, really important. And the question is, what's the Bible's own internal structure? What's the Bible's own categories? How has God put the Bible together so that we now, when we interpret it, think through how he has put it together, how we think his thoughts after him? Now, we think he's right on asking these questions. Uh, we also think that his proposal is insufficient. Right? Uh, you expect me to say that. Um, so that uh, he, as he works through it, he works through What's very, very helpful here is he works through a lot of evangelicals, particularly he works through, and this will be close to many of us who have been thinking through these areas. He works through what he calls the Voss, Gerhardus Voss, Edmund Clowney way of putting the Bible together, which is strongly associated with Westminster. Now, I've been hugely indebted to Gerhardus Voss and Edmund Clowney and these wonderful giants uh, of the faith. But he makes a point in here, which is very, very interesting, that the way that they structure the Bible isn't true precisely, not in every way, but precisely to how the Bible itself is structured. And it's very interesting if you go back and look at Gerhardus Voss and Edmund Clowney's work, they will structure things in terms of creation, fall, covenant of grace, mosaic administration, Christ administration under the covenant of grace. Now, that's just traditional covenant theology. But Goldsworthy's point is, when you read the Old Testament, they're leaving something out. Now, again, if you were to press Voss and Clowney with what they're leaving out, they would say, what are you talking about? We we incorporate it. But it doesn't fit in terms of their overall structure. And what Clowney points out is what they leave out is they really de-emphasize the role of David. Solomon, the Davidic covenant, the exile, huge themes that if you just go from Moses to Christ, I mean, you're sort of flattening things out here a little bit. And I think uh, uh, um, uh, Goldsworthy is exactly right at this point. So what he proposes is you know, a fairly common way, and he calls it, you know, indebted to his teacher. We won't get into that. He calls it um, uh, the Robertson-Hebert proposal. And, and what he says is, is the Bible is structured this way. He says, Genesis 1 to 11. I think everyone acknowledges those crucial, crucial chapters, right? Creation, fall, all the way to Babel. And then he says the history, right? You have the history of Israel, right, from Abraham. And, of course, he's connecting it with Genesis 1 to 11. But the history, then, is how kingdom is given to us. And as you work through the history of Israel, and he doesn't talk. He he doesn't deny the covenants, but he doesn't talk about the covenants a whole lot. It's more kingdom. And as you have the kingdom unfold in Israel's history through David and Solomon, you then have what he says, the typological patterns laid down. And then when you come to the prophets, they then take that history, those patterns, and they project it 
into the future. And often when you read the prophets, they, they take the exodus and project a new exodus. They take the temple and look for a new temple. They take uh, these themes and they project it. And then the New Testament then brings fulfillment. Right? So what was projected is now brought to fulfillment in Jesus Christ in terms of his first coming, second coming, what's known as inaugurated eschatology or the already not yet tension. Right? Now, um, I think he's on track here, but I think we could provide a better solution to what he's doing here. If you follow, if you look at what he's doing here, and, and what he's, why he's differing is then, again from Clowney and Voss is that he's really wanting to pick up the role of David. When you read the Old Testament, David's huge. If he followed the progression of the covenants, right, he would get everything he wanted. Right? So that if you go through Genesis 1 to 11, what's framing Genesis 1 to 11? Adam, Noah, flood, Babel. All those crucial chapters covenantally worked out, laying down you know, major, major structures. Right? Genesis 12, through the history of Israel, what are you walking through? Abraham, through Israel, Mosaic covenant, Old covenant, Davidic covenant. We argue, and I'm not sure if we, Peter, if we, if we argue this more explicitly. I mean, I've, come, I've sort of been thinking about this more as we've been teaching this and thinking through it uh, even after Goldsworthy's book, but I think Dave, uh, Peter would agree with this too. I mean, if you were to then say, as you walk through those Old Testament covenants to David, I would argue that David, in some sense, is the epitome of the Old Covenant. See, that's what the Voss clowny model doesn't pick up the same way, right? Everything dumps into the Davidic king. So that as you work from Adam to David, I mean, David, in some sense, as an individual, epitomizes Israel. He's a son of God. Well, Israel's the son of God. I mean, there's all kinds of typological patterns here, right? In the Abrahamic, Psalm 72 and other things like this, the Davidic king will be the one who brings the Abrahamic promises and blessings to pass, right? Well, of course, in Israel's history, none of that happens. But, of course, it's very interesting when you think of the writing prophets, and I'm not thinking of um, uh, you know, Samuel and Kings, the former prophets, but the writing prophets, right? All of the writing prophets, when are those writing prophets written? Post-Davidic covenant, right? All of the writing prophets. So we often think of the prophets as prosecutors of the covenant. They bring the curses of the covenant upon the people, and rightly so. But they also then project all of these covenant unfolding and all the patterns that are in those covenants to the future. And so they look for the greater king. But then, of course, we saw yesterday with shepherd, Ezekiel 34, who's woven together with king. The king now, as you work from picking up the patterns of Adam and Israel and so on, now begins to take on a larger notion, right? The king now is, is seen as lord. And you think, how does that work together, right? He's, he's king, he's human, he's, but he's also Lord. He, he's the one who is the Lord and the king, the son, the Yahweh and, and the son everywhere. You think of Psalm 2 and the Psalter, of course, is, you know, don't, don't read the Psalter other than reading it as an entire book, right? And the book is, you know, you've got individual Psalms all the way back to Moses, but the book is post-exilic. So it is now taking all of these covenants and all the patterns of the covenant, sort of what Goldsworthy is saying in terms of the history, but now it's understood covenantally and it's projecting to the future so that when you come to New Testament Christology, I've been, Lord willing, uh, or, or, or you know, by God's grace, I've been able to work through areas of Christology and just finish something on the person of Christ. But I mean, you think of New Testament Christology, everything. In New Testament Christology, the whole identity of Christ is all built off of these covenants, right? He's the true David. He's the greater than Solomon. 
He's great Abraham's seed. He's the last Adam. He's the Lord, right? And all of it is built off of the storyline of the Old Testament. All of it's building off of these covenants that, that create in them an unfolding plan, but also tension. These covenant mediators are lousy, right? We saw that in the shepherds yesterday. They are disasters. These prophet, priests, and kings, and all the way they're described, yet there's the anticipation that the Lord and the king, the son, the father, son, who is, who's this identity, this king who's the Lord, will come and he will rescue the people. And of course, it all then comes to fulfillment in the father, son, but in the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate, who now brings the end of the ages to pass, who brings this new covenant era. So, so why, what do I think Goldsworthy is doing? And this is the whole nature of biblical theology here. Biblical theology, we are very, 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 very concerned, I think you should be as well, to say we want to know how the Bible fits together on God's terms. We want to know how the pieces fit together, right? Um, again, we can be biased in this. We have to have one another help us, but we want to bring our test to say, okay, how have you made yourself known? Let's think your thoughts after you. And the progression of the covenants is the way that we see this going on. Now, let me just, 15 minutes left here in terms of thinking of, all right, that's the progression of the covenants are central to biblical theology. I've tried to give some sense of how we're using biblical theology. Biblical theology contrasts to a sort of liberal thought, Biblical theology contrasted with even evangelical thought. We're not interested in just themes. We want to know how these themes work themselves out the way God intended to work themselves out. And we're convinced at the heart of God's intent, right, is understanding the progression of his plan through the covenants. We're not even treating the covenants as the central theme of the Bible. I have no idea how you'd figure out what the central theme is, right? Because everyone that comes up with the central theme always leaves something out. Uh, ultimately, it's the glory of God. Uh, but that's pretty broad, isn't it? But, you know, um, we're not going to say this is the theme of the Bible. Yet we're going to say that the covenants provide the backbone of the storyline. The covenants, you cannot think of how the covenants find their culmination in Christ uh, apart from walking through these relations, interrelationships between the biblical covenants. Now, when we think about progression of, of the covenants. I mean, how do we come to that? Right? I mean, if we're saying, well, this is how the Bible structure, I mean, how do we come to that? Well, um, we come to it. I mean, this seems sort of obvious, and I don't mean to sort of say it in a naive kind of sense here, but we, we come to it by just reading Scripture as it's given to us. Uh, by reading Scripture step by step, Right? Not only in terms of what it claims for itself. This is a unified revelation. It's of God. God speaks through the human authors. All that we've sort of hinted at there. But you read the phenomena of the text. One observation. Again, this is not an insight. I mean, all Christians have seen this all the way back to, you know, the Apostle Paul and Irenaeus and all these individuals. But I mean, God's revelation didn't come to us at once, did it? Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers the prophets, many times, various ways, and of course in Hebrews that many times also picks up the notion not only of repetition, but also incompleteness. Uh, diverse ways, but, right? so you have this notion of now in redemptive history, uh, but in these last days, and of course last days is an Old Testament term, as what the prophets look forward to, the final culmination of this has now come in the sun, right? Well, what is that? Well, that's progressive revelation, right? That's an unfolding plan cross-redemptive history now centered in Jesus Christ. So we're picking that up. And again, everyone acknowledges this. It all depends on what you do with it. Right? 
so that we all acknowledge, right, God has made himself known not just once, right? He's made himself known through time. We now have a canon that closes that revelation. And that's very, very important to say there's a closure to it so that we now can see, read Scripture in light of Scripture. Uh, we're not left ambiguous here. We can see how the New Testament uses the Old, how the Old uh, points us to the New, and, and it must fit. Right? New Testament authors, we're convinced, aren't misreading the Old. Uh, they may give us a greater understanding. That's what you'd expect. But as author and author and author is laid down, that understanding is following in a proper sense of trajectory. I mean, you're, you're, there's, there's more clarity. So if you want to speak about a fuller understanding, that's legitimate. If you mean, right, as each author is laid down, God reveals himself through those authors, through the covenants. The later authors pick up earlier authors. They come to understand more. I think Isaiah understands more than Moses did. But then it ultimately culminates in the New Covenant and the New Testament and the canon that comes in Jesus Christ so that we then have clarity. We see how the last days have brought all this to pass, right? So as we read Scripture, right, we read it in terms of how the various authors relate to one another. So that's the fancy term for that is intertextual, right? So because authors are over time, we see how later authors pick up earlier authors. Earlier authors anticipate ultimately later authors, right? The earlier author may not have understood. Did Moses understand all of the full... When he thought of the Exodus, did he think of the cross of Christ? I have no idea. But I know Isaiah is thinking of the Exodus in ways that projected to the future of terms of a greater deliverance. So that as God is now making himself known, there's a pattern that's established there in the Exodus that then is picked up. And it's picked up. Right? God is then saying, watch how it's get picked up, right? Uh, so as it gets picked up, you then say, oh, that's what God, where it's going. Right? Sort of like connecting dots, right? You've got this dot and this dot and this dot. Do you go this way or do you go this way? Well, you've got to see how the texts take it this way instead of that way. And so you see how texts are put together and as you walk. This is where I talk about uh, in the book that, and again, this is nothing new. I even borrowed it from the, uh, the Reform guys. Um, uh, that we read the Bible in terms of three contexts. I think it's really important. We have to teach our people to read the Bible this way, right? Because it comes to us over time. First context, right, is the immediate context, right? You read any book as a book. And uh, you read Isaiah as Isaiah, and you read it in terms of its uh, whole literature and how uh, it's put together as a literary unit and so on. But, of course, Isaiah is not free-floating. Isaiah is built on that which is previous, so you say, Isaiah understands things in light of what's previous, right? So the second context is placing that text, whatever that book is, text you're reading, in light of what preceded it. And then thirdly, you're not finished until you see it in light of the whole counsel of God. Right? Now when we do that with the covenants, right, each of the covenants then are part of one plan. Right? Part of one plan but each covenant has its place in redemptive history interconnected with what preceded it and ultimately how it's brought to fulfillment. So as you study the Old Covenant, you can't understand the Old Covenant first without understanding it in its own redemptive historical context. What's going on here? Who's the nation of Israel? What's he done for them out of Egypt? What's he given to them as a whole package? But then how is it building off of that which preceded it? Right? So how is it advancing? How is it picking up the Abrahamic? But not just ending there. How does it pick up ultimately that tied back to creation? Right? And then for us who live in after, how is the Davidic now related to the old? 
And how is it then brought to the new, right? So that's why we scrap the term covenant of grace because covenant of grace just sort of flattens them all. We're saying, no, there, there's actual development here. There's progression here. There's an unfolding revelation here. And especially when you move to the new covenant, there is change. Uh, there's fulfillment. There's culmination. And you better see some culmination here. The end of the ages has come. Salvation has come in its fullness that was anticipated earlier so that this is the proper sense of continuity, similarity, as well as change, discontinuity. Right? And there has to be a proper uh, sense to that. Right? Now, that's how we're then seeking to say this is, now, where do we get this from? I think it comes from what the text is, right? We're reading the Bible according to what it claims. We're reading the Bible according to how it has actually come to us. So, you know, I have I have a person who remain nameless, um, who who, uh, who 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 teaches some uh, other students who says, you know, that Wellam guy, uh, you know, these these context 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 and three horizons and and uh, he says, you know, that's an interesting hermeneutic and and uh, you know you don't really have to follow that and and they say, what do you think of that? And I say. Um, well, I mean, try, but uh, that's how the Bible comes to us. I mean, it doesn't come to us from heaven all at once, right? It comes to us step by step, and God has unfolded his plan. I mean, there's nothing new here. This isn't some brilliant insight. It's just simply the outfolding of how God has disclosed himself to us in the phenomena of the text. So we are then seeking to apply this to the biblical covenants. Now, one last area here that we want to propose and then... um, Again, this is, again, nothing new, but uh, trying to nail down some of these issues, right? So, biblical theology, progression of the covenants as underpinning to really get at the heart of how the Bible fits together, you've got to now think through how these covenants unfold. You've got to spend time doing that. Right? Uh, typology, right? Typology. Typology, patterns, symbolism, however you want to call it, that is um, given to us that ultimately reaches its culmination in Christ, types and patterns. Topology, we usually speak, there's a whole debate on the nature of topology. And a lot of topological discussion today is going to allegory. When it goes to allegory, basically what that means is, is that you see some connection between something in the Old Testament and Christ, but you have no textual basis for it. So you can make up a lot of things, right? So Eve becomes the church or something like that, right? Uh, the Good Samaritan becomes whatever. I mean, so, I mean, parables have an allegorical flavor to them. They're intended to have that, right? But the question is, is, you know, how do some of these, what we call persons, events, institutions, that's a simple way of, of speaking of these patterns. So various people. How do they anticipate ultimately Christ and these various events, exodus, institutions, tabernacle, temple, sacrificial system, and so on, anticipate Christ? Now, we argue for a specific notion of typology, which we think is tied to uh, a sensus literalis, literal sense, God intention, and so on, that tries to avoid our imaginative reconstruction. So we argue, first of all, that typology to be typology, and we do not think everything is typology. If you make everything typology, nothing's typology. Um, so if you find typology everywhere, you just killed it, right? Uh, so that uh, typology is tied, yes, to history, but it's tied to textual warrant, right? There's got to be a textual basis for what you're arguing that's connected with text, with text, with text, right? So that you say, I, I, I know what God's doing here, right? Secondly, typology is part of prophetic prophecy or predictive, so that when God creates an atom, 
He just doesn't say, hey, I'll make you the first man. Uh, you'll serve this way, right? No, his creation of an Adam is intended, designed, purposed, right? To point forward to another one, the last Adam, right? Uh, the Exodus isn't just an arbitrary event. Oh, how am I going to get these people out of Egypt? Well, let's go do this, right? These things are implanned by God to point beyond themselves. Now, we come to know where it's ultimately going by putting text together with text, right? To see how later authors pick it up, to see how the trajectory goes. But we then say, as at the canonical level, yes, that's where it's going. That, so the Exodus illustration I gave you. It, it's not correct to say the Exodus ends up in liberation theology, right? No, it ends up in the crucifixion and the cross. That's how it ends up, biblically, right? If you're going to be biblical, that you have to follow its own, its own line. So it's predictive and it is uh, prophetic, right? We also will argue, and then this is a point of, of where people differ, we will say that all the patterns of the typological patterns of the Bible first come to culmination in Christ. Now, in some sense, everyone says that. Well, sort of. Um, we want to say, first you have to see how all the patterns of the Scripture, persons, events, institutions, find their culmination in Him. There's the Christological sense. They then will have a spillover effect to us. Right? So you think of a sonship theme in Scripture. Right? A son, you can ultimately argue, is taken back to Adam. But we'll pick it up first with Israel. Israel is the son of God, Exodus 4. It's then advanced through the Davidic covenants. The Son of God becomes the king, who then is, and as an individual, takes on the role of Israel, and ultimately, we'd argue, the role of Adam, who brings God's rule to the world, but of course, he doesn't do so. It then comes to fulfillment first. So all the Davidic patterns first come to fulfillment in Christ, right? He is the Son. He is the king. He is all of this. And then it comes over to us as sons and daughters. So the adoption theme, right? Because of his sonship work, we now are sons, right? Now, this becomes very, very important when you start applying these things to disagreements among us about, say, the nature of the church, right? So you have Israel. Well, you have to start acting, who's Israel? Well, Israel now functions under the Old Covenant in a certain way. Israel has to be understood in light of what preceded it and how they're picking up, we would argue, the role of Adam, how it's then brought to David and then over to Christ, right? So as you move from Israel... Covenant theology tends to go from Israel to church very, very quickly. So Israel as a, Israel within Israel and remnant and, you know, believer, believer, unbeliever, uh, you and your children come over to the church in exactly the same way and the ordinances come over that way. You say, no, 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 no. That's not how the Bible works. Uh, Israel becomes an entire pattern. Yes, there are people, but they become an entire pattern that ultimately reaches Christ, then to us. And of course, that brings with it some major changes in the nature of the church, the nature of the covenant community, the nature of the ordinances, and so on and so on and so on, right? So that small little point will have implications theologically in a whole host of areas, right? So we then say topology is rooted in the text, it's predictive, it culminates in Christ first, right? Uh, and then it works a kind of pattern. You see the typological pattern. How do you know it's a typological pattern? Because it's repeated. So you see Adam, for instance, show up in other Adams. Next Adam you see in, uh, in, in the scripture is Noah. He looks a lot like Adam. <laughs> uh, but the Adamic role doesn't just end with Noah. Right? It's picked up with Abraham, picked up with Israel. What are we walking through? We're walking through the covenants here, right? 
It ultimately, ultimately culminates in the last Adam, who now brings us back to our role as image bearers. Psalm 8, Hebrews 2, all of these great passages that link it this way. Right? So there's a repetition of this, but then as you get to the fulfillment, there is incredible advance. So some people talk about as you work from old to new, you sort of go up the line and then eventually you have Christ up here. I like to describe it as you got a sort of a flat line. And then you go like this, right? So that all the typological patterns, in some sense, as the story of the Old Testament unfolds, all of the persons, they anticipate ultimately Christ, but all of them are miserable. All of them fail, and that's part of the story, right? That's part of the anticipation. Even the David, I need a better David. Uh, Solomon, I mean, he seems to be an advance on, on David, isn't he? Ah, oh, not really. Just keep reading his life, right? Uh, eventually all of them sort of flatline, but they are there's a repetition of them. They anticipate, yet when you come to Christ, and this is how New Testament Christology works, right? He is far greater. He is the Lord of glory. He is the Son incarnate. I mean, he is the one who eclipses them in every way. So the very, and we'll come back to this afternoon, the very um, um, inauguration, for instance, of the kingdom, uh, the synoptic gospels often are viewed in academic circles as, uh, oh, that's a little lower Christology than John. Oh, baloney. <laughs> Not if you follow the storyline. Not if you follow the covenants. The one who inaugurates God's kingdom isn't Moses. Right? Isn't David. Those guys don't inaugurate anything. Right? They ultimately are God's servants. They bring the covenant. But in the end, the one who brings the kingdom is the Lord, who is the Son. Right? This is a divine act. Right? That's why it's called the kingdom of God. It's God's kingdom that comes to this world. So that you now have Christ now in the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, you have, well, you have deity and humanity woven together all the way from you need another Adam. You need a representative figure. You need to see the woman, but you need the Lord. And of course, that's how the entire plan of redemption works too. You need God to save you, right? So our old great, uh, reformed theology in terms of salvation is of the Lord. Well, where do you get that from? The whole Bible. Right? Uh, from beginning to end, God must act. God must save and he must do so through his son and you have the glory of the triune God unfolded. But that's, but it's built off of these typological patterns. Right? So that you have then repetition, you have greater, so you have the prophet, priests, and kings anticipate in some shadowy sense, but they are ultimately culminating in Christ who is the great prophet, priest, and king. Now, what we then say then, and um, um, I don't think, again, this is anything per se new, but uh, I, think I haven't seen it so much, maybe in a sort of self-consciously laid out there, and you can correct me on this, this is our proposal here, is that all the typological patterns, I can't understand the development of those typological patterns apart from understanding the progression of the covenants. All of those typological patterns are developed covenantally. Right? Prophet, priest, and king, right? automatically you're tying those to covenants. Great David. Covenant, right? Uh, tabernacle, temple, covenants, right? I mean, all of them. So as you work through the covenants, you are seeing an unfolding of not only these patterns, but they're anticipating, they're revealing. And part of what the burden I gave as we, I try to summarize in chapter 16, you're seeing a redemptive plan. You're not just seeing an interesting facts and figures about God with his people. You are seeing something of a redemptive plan, and, and that's why we try to develop, and we'll come back to this this afternoon, there's tensions that are developed in this storyline. And the tensions uniquely center on, God is holy, you're a fallen sinner, 
You can't dwell in the presence of a holy God, yet God forgives. But how does he forgive? Oh, there's sacrifices, and there's old covenant, and there's priests, and there's all these kind of things. Yet, God shouldn't forgive, but he does forgive. How are you just? This is Romans 3, the tension. God demands obedient image bearers. We don't obey. And none of those covenant mediators obey. Yet, there is one who does. There is one who does come. And of course, that's why we then propose, and you agree with this, that eventually, as all these covenants go uh, through redemptive history, what do, they, what, do they, what do they come to fulfillment in? The new covenant. That's why we call it new covenant theology. But I mean, new covenant theology isn't just a nice little label to say, well, we, we only believe in this covenant, not the other ones. No, we're saying the progression of the covenants lead to Christ. They lead to fulfillment in Him. The whole storyline of the Bible, our plight, who God is, the solution to that plight, how we may receive redemption finds its culmination in him, right? So that he then is the one that all of God's promises are found in. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, everything is headed up in him, right? So that's why I come back to the point where I say to my other, uh, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree on some of these points, I say, you're not Christological enough. I mean, when you start making the church just like Israel, well, you forgot Christ and what he did. Uh, when you start seeing even how the new creation and land and these things, and that's probably more of a problem with dispensationalism, comes to fruition in Christ and his work and the new creation and all that's there, you're not Christ enough. You've got still something left over for this nation. No, it comes to Christ and the new people of God and the church and the one new humanity. That's what is all this point of where it's going, right? And then as we then now as Christians, and let me just say this and I'll finish, we're not antinomian. <laughs> we get charged with that all the time. Um, we're not antinomian. No, 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 no. We, 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 we view the Old Covenant as what you should view it as a whole package. It's at its place in redemptive history, tied to what's previous, fulfilled in Christ. We are under the whole Bible. We're not under the Old Covenant as a covenant. Right? We're under the New Covenant. Yet, we are under the whole Bible. And how do the Old Bible now, in all of its depth and breadth and all of its covenant relations, come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ? Right? So, I spent a number of times in my church when I was a Sunday school teacher and then I became associate pastor working through Leviticus. Great study. How does Leviticus apply to us? In every way, but in through Christ. So we then have to say, how are these under the old covenant functioning? How are they now seeing this fulfillment in Christ? And then how should we think about this in terms of us now in light of what we are as new covenant people, right? So the food laws come over, not you can't have pork, you can have pork. But they come over to us as teaching us, right? Jew-Gentile have been brought together, Acts 10. They come over to teach us that uh, God was also teaching them. You need more than just the external and clean, unclean. He's teaching your unholy people, but he also teaches you need a new heart, right? Mark 7. I mean, these things come over that way where we say, yes, yes, yes. That's why 2 Timothy 3 can say all of this is for our instruction. All of this is for correction, reproof, for doctrine, so that the demand on Christ and what he provides for us is a greater demand. Right? We then, in the church, right, expect people who are regenerate people who know Christ to live like Christians. That's why we bring discipline on them if they don't. Right? We don't treat them as unbelievers. Right? We don't treat them as, and of course, uh, this gets into church structures, and uh, we finished something on congregationalism just recently with uh, Nine Marks, and, and I argue that this this notion of that you see, and we've, it's been plagued reform circles, and now it's plaguing all kinds of circles, this, ref, this, this rule, elder rule stuff, who then these pastors come in, and they just rule the people, and as if these people are, are, are unregenerate people, what kind of view of the church do you have? 
the church is a regenerate community. They may be immature, but they have the spirit. They grow in grace, and you're just a leader. You're a shepherd. Uh, who do you think you are? Uh, you're there given by God, but I mean, the nature of the new covenant isn't like the old covenant. They're functioning under old covenant terminology here. So that this does then have implications, how you put your Bible together, what the church is, how it shows up in the work of Christ, how you understand uh, its application to us, and so on and so on. So that's where biblical covenants, right, underpinning, foundation to an entire whole Bible theology. Right? And you cannot then, I think, and say, and we argue, you cannot draw proper conclusions unless you think through those carefully. And most of our disagreements and debates is, I would say, precisely, we're not thinking through them carefully, right? That's where we, and then we have to go back and say, well, who's right here? Uh, who's doing it properly? And then lay our cards on the table and have our discussions and debates and pray over them and come back to Scripture and say, this is what is uh, the way God intended for this to fit. So that's where we are. We need to have our break. I've gone over time. Um, let's pray and then pray for even those refreshments, right? Coffee. We always pray for coffee. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to think your thoughts after you. Uh, these issues can be complicated. Uh, that should be expected. We are dealing with your revelation, all of its depth and breadth. Help us to wrestle with these matters. Uh, where we uh, go astray, correct us. Um, help us to bring um, our thinking, our exegesis, our conclusions uh, to the authority of your word so that we may rightly glory in you, our great triune God, in the face of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's he who we want to exalt and uphold, and we pray that um, in our lives, in our thinking, in our lives, our churches, um, our families, that Christ would indeed be Lord, uh, that he would be, uh, as he is, the new covenant head who is won everything for us and that we would be debtors to grace and that we would understand how your plan culminates in him. That is our desire. Give us uh, strength through our refreshments. Bring us back as we uh, uh, wrestle with Peter's presentations uh, so that we may uh, think through these matters even in a deeper way. And we ask this in Jesus' name.